Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, everybody. It's Marianne Bailey with the Hip Senior Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have on the podcast Kay Coglin, and she is the owner and founder of Facilitator on Fire and the host of the podcast From One Caregiver to Another. Kay, welcome to the podcast. Marianne, I just can't even tell you how thrilled I am to be here with you today. Thank you so much. This is so fun. It really is. You and I became fast friends the minute we met, and we just knew that we had to do some podcasts together. If this one turns out good, look for more. And if this one really stinks, then forget it. But all deals are off. We have a lot to say when we get together. We do. We absolutely do. And today we are going to talk about boundaries, which I know I have problems with sometimes. I'm sure a bunch of you have problems with that as well. And Kay has the solutions for it. So we're just going to delve right into this after Kay tells us a little bit more about her business and what it is that she does. All right. Short version of my business is that I am a business coach for solopreneurs and small business leaders. As you said, I do have a podcast, which is called From One Caregiver to Another. You might say, how does that, what does that have to do with business coaching? What I say is that it is the business podcast for people who have family caregiver responsibilities and want to stay in the workforce or need to stay in the workforce. I am both. I need to work, but also I love what I do and I want to work. And what kind of brings all of that together for me is that I am a family caregiver myself and I am an advocate for family caregivers as well. And the reason that I do all that is once I became a family caregiver and my road to this started 12 or 13 years ago, I figured out pretty quickly that in caregiving, there's no room for the caregiver. It's like you become a caregiver and all of a sudden you have no other identity as far as other people are concerned and you have no other purpose in the world. (laughs) That is not how I do caregiving. That's not how I do being a wife or a mom, I have lots of identities. And at the time, there were zero voices out there talking about how to keep being yourself, even though you've got all this other stuff going on. And now there are very few voices talking about that. There are more of us. And so I just try to be as loud as I can in that space and say, if you caregiver responsibilities, you're allowed to have a job. If you want to or need to, you're allowed to have your own life, your own needs, your own desires. And in fact, instead of saying all the time, caregivers, as much as possible, I try to say people with caregiver responsibilities so that everybody remembers, including us, we are people first, whole people first. That's why I do what I do. Well, you know what? In addition to a caregiver having those responsibilities, when they are caregiving, it's almost like a business to some extent. You've got to arrange for meetings for doctor's appointments to pick up prescriptions when prescriptions need to be handed out. All that stuff needs to be scheduled, right? And so the same kind of rules that you would apply to running a business, you almost have to apply to running a caregiver, even though 
you can still have your identity outside of that when those other things still align with having that. So the two businesses of that would go hand in hand, at least that's how I see it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, I talk about, so because I'm a mom and I have two boys and they're older now, they're 15 and 20. So I only run one carpool these days, but I don't run the whole carpool. I don't drive everybody. I manage the carpool, which gets me some points so I don't always have to drive. I was thinking about one day and I started saying to myself, what if we call caregiving a carepool? So I try to think of myself, instead of being the one who has to do everything all the time, I'm the chief operating officer and I manage the care pool so that everybody who's in this with me, my siblings and all of my mom's doctors and everybody in our community, they drive sometimes too. And I think that's a really helpful analogy for those of us who are the primary caregiver, which is how we're known, that we are allowed to get help. We are allowed to say when enough is enough. And we're allowed to say, this is something I'm not trained to do. I'm not comfortable doing it. And that could apply to anything that has to do with helping an adult do anything and say, this one, this can't be on me. I can't do this. And boy, that is not something that we are taught. We are not taught that you're allowed to say, gee, this isn't a piece of this that I can do. can't do this piece of it. I really need help, which actually kind of gets us into boundaries. I would say that's a great segue mm -hmm. into this boundary section there. Yeah. It's almost, I'll say to caregivers every now and then, no, you don't actually have to insert whatever here. And they look at me like I'm from another planet because we have been taught that we do have to do everything and we have to do it by ourselves and we have to not complain and we have to not get really upset about the fact that we feel isolated in doing this. Before we go on, I just want to say that a brand new study just came out from the ERP. They do a really good job keeping us up on the numbers of what's going on in the U.S. And as I think the study came out last week, it was March 8th, I think, the data that we have now is that the value of unpaid family caregiving in this country every year is $600 billion. That is billion with a B. And that is actually more than the value of all paid health care combined. Wow. We are the biggest unpaid, unem unemployed in that job workforce in healthcare. 10,000 people become boomers a day. Yeah. So yeah, that's under, that's crazy big, but yeah. understandable at the same time. It's crazy, crazy big. Okay. So with all that information, which is a ton of information in itself and could be a whole <laughs> entire podcast, and I'm sure will be one of these days with us, but let's talk about boundaries. And it's a word that we hear a lot now that we never used to really hear before. And so my first question to you is to find a boundary. What exactly are people talking about when they say, I'm setting my boundaries? Okay. So the first thing to know is that we're talking about personal boundaries. So personal to me, personal to you, personal to whoever is listening. And I only say that because a boundary can also be defined as 
like a division between land or a division between countries right. thing that is a barrier that makes something different from something else is a boundary. So my skin is also a boundary. Okay. So let's talk about what personal boundaries means. I have created a working definition for this. This is not something you're going to find in your dictionary. You will find some pretty good definitions, but not the one I use. This is a two-part definition. The first part is making decisions in advance about what's okay with you and what's not okay with you and what you're going to do if those not okay things happen. So that's the first part to remember, what's making decisions about what's okay and what's not okay. Now, the second part of this is somewhat harder, I think. So the second part of this definition. So if the first part is deciding and deciding what you're going to do when those not okay things happen, the second part of the definition is knowing that there are times when you have to communicate that to other people. So it's as if the first part wasn't bad enough, now we have to open up our mouths and say to someone that's not okay with me no or however it is that you say that so those are the two pieces that make up a complete definition of what a personal boundary is so how does a person even start to recognize that they need boundaries or that they're not they're not setting those boundaries for themselves like i know for myself that I was letting people get too close and take too much advantage. And everyone kept saying, oh, you need to set your boundaries. And I was like, I don't even know what that means or how to even begin that process. Okay. The most, there, there are really two most common ways that you can start to identify that you need a boundary. And the first one is Unfortunately, when something happens that makes you really uncomfortable, when you feel like someone's getting too close, when you really think, wow, someone took credit for my work, it's that kind of stuff where you really have these really challenging emotions about it. So it's a sort of a, it's actually what I think of as like this vague ickiness that somehow your personal identity has been invaded or your personal space has been invaded. So it's a general ickiness. The other way, and I like talking about this general ickiness first, because the second way is when you can actually identify what those emotions are. And we're not very good at identifying specific emotions. Most of no, us I'm can not. identify, right? Most of us can identify like three happy, angry, and amused or something. And bad or, or sad, yeah. like happy, mad, and sad. We don't identify emotions. So actually, one of the things that I do quite a lot, my social media posts and on my, in my podcast, is I list a whole bunch of challenging emotions that you might feel. And some of these still make me cringe. I think the top one of these is something like resentment. Because we're taught to feel that resentment is bad. You might feel taken advantage of. You might feel just overwhelmed or burnt out. So it's those kinds of things where you feel these really challenging emotions and you can't figure out what's going on. Those don't always happen because you haven't quite figured out what your boundaries are or you haven't decided on a boundary yet. 
but often you feel those emotions because someone is crossing a line and we the way boundaries work is we really just aren't forced to set them until somebody steps over that line so it's very often is that you have to have something bad or uncomfortable happen before you sit down and start thinking about those boundaries and i think that's why people oftentimes will shy away from talking about boundaries because you have to talk about some really hard stuff or think about some really hard stuff. And that might mean reliving some really tough stuff before you can decide on what those boundaries should be for you. And it's hard to really sit and process difficult things that have happened to you, even if what's on the other side is a boundary so that it doesn't happen again. So what I'm hearing you say is that not only is a boundary something that you think about, like something that you're in your head saying, okay, for now on, I need to not let Susie down the street call and say, hey, I can't pick up my kid today. Can you pick them up? And pushing that off on you. So you're thinking like, okay, I need to not do this. But there's a part two step to it. And not every single time is it going to be necessary but you're developing that boundary within your head, but then also part two of expressing that boundary to other people. That's so right. there could be, but not necessarily two steps to this, what I'm hearing. And how would people even begin that conversation with that other person if they chose to move on to that two step and express that to other people? The simplest thing to say is no. Let's say that somebody calls you to ask you to volunteer for something. This happens to people all the time. And no is a complete sentence. So if th that might serve you just fine to say, oh, I'm so glad you called. No, I'm really not available. And, and that may be all that you need to do. I know that some people hearing this are going to think, wow, that's really bold and that's really hard to do. And I agree. It is bold and it is hard to do. So I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss you if you're, if you hear this and you feel that way, I want to tell you that's really normal. Now, the good thing is it also does get easier over time because it's a pretty simple thing to say. There are times when it's still really hard. I think that the more important a relationship is to you or the more important a situation is to you, like your employer, think that there are times that expressing those boundaries is still extremely difficult because the stakes are really high. And that makes total sense to me. So it's not like, it's not like you, you set a boundary and then all of a sudden everything is rainbows and unicorns. But for me, the difference has been as I have learned to set boundaries. And for me, this has really been work that pretty much started about 10 years ago. And really only intensively about five years ago. So I lived for a long time without being able to do this very well. I had some of an instinct to do, but I still don't think I did it very well. I lost my train of thought. Okay, Kate. So what I'm hearing is that this could be, but not necessarily, is a two-step process, right? You identify what it is that you need to set boundaries for, right? So you're thinking about that in your own head, okay? I need to say that I'm not going to ride around Susie's kid because she can't do that or whatever that boundary may be. You need to come up with that in your own head. 
but then you also, and that might just be something you decide internally and line stops there, right? But sometimes there's a need to tell the other person involved in that equation that you've set a boundary. You know, this you're not going to do that anymore, whatever the case may be. How do you even begin to have this conversation with somebody about something like that once you've decided that's going to be the course you go with? I think this is probably one of the most common questions that I get. How do I have that conversation? And not make them offended by it also at the same time. Do you have to be concerned about that? Okay. These are two different things. Okay. So let's talk about them separately. The first one is how do you have a conversation with someone when you need to? And the real answer to that is you practice it. And I am not kidding at all. So the easiest way to tell someone that they're going to cross a boundary is just to say the word no, which that's hard enough. Saying no is hard. I get it. There are other ways that you can tell someone that they have crossed a boundary. One of the one of the things to do, like in your example, neighbor calls, hey, can you pick up my daughter again? Can you drive my daughter home from school? So you can say, no, I'm not able to do that today. And that's your boundary. And you might go a little further with that and clarify expectation, which would be to say, and I'm not available for this except in dire emergencies. And by that, I mean, I probably can't do it more than once a month. So you're expressing yourself very clearly by talking about the boundary. And then the, then you're clarifying that expectation if you need to. Okay. And so I just want everyone who hears this to understand that communicating your boundaries, expressing your boundaries to people is hard. Hold on one second. Okay. Okay. So yes, telling someone no or however it is that you need to express your boundary is a very difficult thing to do. A lot of us have been taught that we can't do that. And what I want to tell you is that it does get easier over time. I'm not going to say that it's ever easy because I don't think that's true, but it does get easier. The higher the stakes are, I think the harder it is. And I think that's just normal. One of the weird pressures that we put on ourselves with boundaries is that I should be good at this and I should be an expert at this and it should be easy and should. And I'm just telling you, don't put that pressure on yourself. It does get easier over time. But then the stakes are really high or you get sick and you get tired and overwhelmed and your defenses are down and then it gets hard again for a while. That's just normal. That's just the way boundaries work. So it is very difficult to do, but you can practice it. I give a lot of scripts over on my own podcast. So how, uh, and how do they it. find that? Just so we'll... Yep. You find that. The podcast is at facilitatoronfire.net okay. slash podcast. And that's, you can find that on my website and all over my social media. So it's not too hard to find. And these scripts um, she's talking about, guys, they work. Kay's brilliant at this. So uh, another you. thing I learned a while back about being able to say no is not to inject the word why behind it. It doesn't matter what their why is. The fact is that you can't do it. So you just say no. I'm sorry. Because 
That's how I ended up with a dog that I didn't need one time. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Dog? No, why? And then I heard the sob story and then I couldn't say no. So I learned back then just to stop at the word no. Okay. I, I want to tell you why it is that, that it works that way. When you use the word why and ending up with a dog that you didn't need and didn't want is a, a very funny example. I'm sorry that happened to you, but man, we've all been there with something or other. But the reason that works, and I'm not one to say why, but what I'll do is I will say no, because, and then I start listing off my reasons, justifying it. I think we're justifying it. And what the other person hears is that we're opening up negotiations. So when you say no, but no, because no, why, what they hear is, oh, there's some wiggle room here. That's That's okay. A lot of times that's okay because a lot of times there is some wiggle room. Like with your example about being able to pick up somebody's kid. No, you can't do it all the time, but you might be able to do it once a month or whatever. So you might have some wiggle room. But if you don't have wiggle room, particularly if with somebody who you know very easily manipulates you or manipulates a situation. Or doesn't return the favor, right? If it's a Doesn't return the favor, takes advantage of you in any way then just don't open negotiations. You say, I'm really glad you called, but I'm not interested. Or I'm really glad you called, but that's not something I can do. And then you stop. And it's really hard. And it's almost like you have to reach up and physically zip up your own lips unless you want to open negotiations. It's just really important to understand that's why that works is that it's actually a negotiation. That's what's really going on there. We're giving examples of like children. So, but... What if you're a senior or a caregiver for a senior? Let's talk about some of those examples, like why those boundaries might have to be in place. Uh, Either way for those, you you choose what you want to talk about. But a lot of times I think seniors are scared of being rude and saying no to people. That's a big Mm -hmm. issue or hanging up the phone or anything like that. So I can imagine that seniors don't have any idea about setting boundaries and why this affects them as well. Look, I just think most of us are really bad about understanding boundaries. It's not something that's ever taught to us. I have this really big dream that we'll start teaching kids about feels like boundaries, these emotional health skills from the time they're tiny, like in preschool. Let's start teaching this at three or four. I can remember when I was very little maybe four or five, being on a playground and there was a boy touching my hair. And someone said to me, oh no, you have to let him touch your hair or else he'll feel bad. You'll make him feel bad. And that's the confusion. That's the confusion right there. And that's the confusion that happens with a lot of caregiving too. I actually recorded an episode that came out, I think it was back in December. And it was the answer to a question that I hear quite a lot which is, do I have to let my in-laws move in? And the short answer is no, you don't have to, but that's not really what people want to hear. They want to hear, how do I do that without making people feel bad? Okay, so I would say go listen to the podcast episode so that you can hear the whole episode. But this is interesting because this gets back to your question a little while ago. And I said, oh, we'll get back to that. Yeah. How do you say no? without making somebody feel bad. Here's the confusion there. We truly think 
that we are responsible for somebody else's feelings. Human feelings don't work that way, at least not among adults. And we need to teach children that they don't work that way either. I, Marianne, cannot reach inside of you and flip some switch and make you feel sad or make you feel angry. Our emotions are not generated from outside of us, right? Stubbing your toe is a sensation. That happens outside. You stub your toe, there's some nerve receptors that get activated. It hurts, right? That's a sensation. But emotions are actually energy that come from within us. I keep pointing to my heart because they feel like they come from there. We know they come from the brain. But you feel emotions all over your body, right? We all know this. You feel anxiety in the pit of your stomach. You might feel dread in the pit, in the base of your throat kind of thing. All right. For every single human on this planet, emotions come from within us. It might seem automatic, but there are processes going on within our bodies to generate those emotions. So I cannot reach inside of you and turn an emotion on. And when we say to someone, you made me feel bad, that is not true. I call this emotional responsibility. I have emotional responsibility for myself. You have emotional responsibility for yourself. We are very confused about this because we truly think that other people can generate emotions in us. I'm trying to, so people can evoke an emotional response in you, but that is not the same thing as being in control of your emotions. So if you say something really nasty to me right now, please don't. I can't even imagine where that would come from, but okay. It's either, but I could be surprised. I could be shocked. I could be very angry. I could feel for very insignificant, but that's simply my reaction. I can learn to separate my reaction from my responses. It actually takes about 90 seconds for that to begin to become clear. And that's a human thing. So we know I have a timer for 90 seconds that a friend of mine gave me. It takes about 90 seconds for that emotional burst. Those chemicals, whatever they are, adrenaline, uh, any endorphins, all of that stuff just to start to dissipate. Okay. And then it's at that point when you can actually start to respond in whatever way you choose. And I will tell you that the more you do this, I think the shorter that time actually is. Like I can ignore those emotional bursts now and respond from a place of my choice instead, instead of necessarily getting angry and crying, which is my response and which I have always disliked immensely about myself. I get angry and I cry, which I have never liked. That actually doesn't happen to me very much anymore because I understand that my emotions are my choice. I get to choose. It's pretty hard to manipulate me now. Now that I understand it's only been probably three or four years that I've had this real understanding of how this works. And it's like really a part of me now. It's very difficult for someone to manipulate me now because I understand if they say to me, you're making me feel bad or you're making me feel guilty, then I know that's not my responsibility. I may or may not articulate that. It depends on the situation, right? But I know that it's not my responsibility. I cannot make you feel guilty. That is not the way this works. 
Okay, so we can't make somebody feel some way. <laughs> I, which feels like a superpower to me. But this Spider-Man reference coming up here, I already told you I have two young men that I'm raising. And we know that with great power comes great responsibility. So because I understand that you can't manipulate me, which is like a superpower, that means that I know darn that I could show up in this world as a total jerk. And it still doesn't have to affect you because I'm not in charge of your emotions. I cannot make you feel anything. It is my responsibility to be in the world however I want to be. I happen to be somebody who wants to be thoughtful, honest, kind, but also straightforward. So my intent always is to be kind and thoughtful and honest. And if I do, that is all I'm responsible for. And if we're in a conversation and that's very difficult for you to take, that's really on you. And hear me what I'm saying here. I am not trying to be a jerk with anyone. But I haven't lived your life. I don't know how you're going to take something that I say. I can be very straightforward and very thoughtful and very caring and very loving. In fact, if somebody reacts in a weird way, because I'm a coach, right? I have this training. I might say to them, that's a really big reaction that you're having. Can you tell me what's going on right now? Did I strike a nerve with you? So in other words, I'm not saying, oh, I'm so sorry I made you mad. I'm saying, I see you as a human and this sounds like this is really hard for you. What's going on? That's very different from me taking responsibility. And it's also like the exact opposite of me being a jerk. But at the same time, you're not a therapist either. Not a therapist. We've talked about that. We're... We don't have to be therapists to do this. That's a really good news. Oh my gosh, this could be the best news ever. Learning to set boundaries and express boundaries, set expectations and express expectations. These are skills. This is like tying your shoe. Anybody can learn to do this. And I just think that's the best news possible because you do not have to have any special training in psychology or relationships or anything like that in order to learn to do this for yourself. Okay. One thing that I heard out of what you said a minute ago, when you held up the little timer and said it was 90 seconds, they used to always tell people when they got angry or upset, count to 10. So I'm guessing the science has changed and 10 is too short of a number and it needs to be 90. Is you know, that a scientific thing or is that just kind of like a minute and a half? Well, it's a good broad range to calm down, relax. Yeah. I think the real difference there is that the count to 10, that has been around for as long as I know. Right. And the science about 90 seconds is pretty recent. It's really just been the last few years that right. came out. Now, we're also learning new things about neuroscience every single day. and. What I have learned, this is totally anecdotal, this is just coming from me, is that while it may take, as I said, while it may take 90 seconds for those that, you know, that real burst of hormones and internal chemicals to start to dissipate, I have learned that I don't have to be at the mercy of those chemicals. So instead of it taking me 90 seconds to be able to respond thoughtfully, carefully in a loving way, right? All those things I just said, it takes me now a beat of about three. 
before I am able to, what I do really is I eat. Okay, so I'm like caught like a deer in a headlight in the chemical burst. That's one breath. And then the second breath is I notice that it's happening. And the third breath is I can say, I get it. And that's not in control of me. And then I can get right back into responding in the way that I, all the ways I really just want to be with people in this world. So I think that's the count to 10. I think that's the difference. Right. So the neuroscience is about 90 seconds. When we're talking about behavioral science, like we can train ourselves to do amazing things. I think it's totally amazing for me that instead of just crying every time I get angry now, that I've got those three breaths and I'm like, I'm not going to choose to let these chemicals cause tears. I'm going to choose to do something else this time. For me, that's almost miraculous. I used to be pretty well known for bursting into tears when I got really angry. And it had nothing to do with me being hurt. I was furious. And so I would cry. And that almost never happens now because I understand how this works. For me, that I used to cry a lot. And what crying does to me is it causes unbelievable, really bad headaches when I cry just and they last longer than the crying did by far. And so for me, besides the fact that trying to evolve, trying to set boundaries, trying to be more in the world, like you said, and being part of holding true to what I want to be in this world as well. But also knowing that if I allow something to get me so angry that I'm crying about it, that it's going to call inflict pain on me. And I don't want that pain, whether it be emotional pain or whether it be this pain in my head from the crying, right? Learning these boundaries for me is important moving forward. And I would imagine that it's important moving forward for a lot of people that just haven't even known that they do need to set boundaries. I'm thinking of grandparents towards their grandchildren that are always saying yes, even though it inconveniences them or puts hardships between them and the parents maybe or whoever, that by setting boundaries and understanding where those lines are, that it can make family relationships a lot better as well. Yeah, I think the fact that most of the time when we're talking about family caregivers, we're talking about family relationships and family relationships that we've been in for decades. We've got these patterns. We've got these habits. And what goes on in our brains around those habits and patterns is just really strong. We've got these really strong inclinations. We've been, I talked about practicing saying no. You've been We've all been practicing whatever these family dynamics are for however old you are. And we've all heard these stories. We're going to leave, we're going to leave the house and all of the property to oldest brother Joe, because in our family, oldest brother Joe gets everything. And sister Susie is the black sheep of the family. And so everybody's going to treat her like the black sheep of the family. And nobody can talk back to grandma. Because that's not the way we treat elders in our family. We've, so we've been living with these things for literally our entire lives. Right. And that stuff is really hard to do. And I just want to acknowledge that here. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, I could never say no to my mom. Oh, I hear you. I totally hear you. I want to tell you that it is possible to say no to your mom. I'm the caregiver for my own mom. She lives right next door. And... We've both put in a lot of really hard work to make it so that now we're in an adult relationship instead of all of the time 
I become the 12 year old and she becomes my mom. That's hard. We are, oh, it's so hard. And it's really worth it because we get, we, ha- we have a really great relationship now, but we've also had to work really hard at it. And there are still times when mom will do something or I'll do something. And because I did it first, I learned to say, mom, I don't like the way we did that. Can we take a break and try again? Or can we start over and try being adults here? Now my mom is doing it. And that is like unheard of. This awesome. is, so this is amazing stuff. It's just yeah. impossible. But when it comes to something like saying no to a grandchild, it's hard. And if it's what you need to do, and you think you, we typically think that we can't say no to people for two reasons. The first one being we don't want to hurt their feelings. And the second reason being that well, it's because they need me to do this or I'm the only one who can do this or in our family, the grandma always does this, those kinds of things. What about a third one? I don't want them to dislike me if I say no. I don't want them to dislike me. So we've got all of yeah. that stuff here. And so when I hear some, when I hear somebody getting really deep into a story, so this sometimes with my business coaching clients, when they talk about their clients, oh, I could never tell that client that they can't email me after hours and expect me to respond to the email. So that's a story that we're telling ourselves. If you are hearing this and you're saying to yourself, I could never say no to my daughter, to my grandchild because I d- they wouldn't like me. I'm telling you that is something to take, please, to a support group or a coach or a therapist, because these are things that we tell ourselves. It doesn't make them true, but it makes them real for us. And until you start getting help from somebody else to really help you unravel that stuff and dig in and help you understand, is it important enough to you to stick with that story for the rest of your life? And sometimes it is. I'm not here to tell you that whatever decision you make is right or wrong, you have to make the decision that's right for you. Here's the thing about boundaries. I find that the more work I do around what's okay with me and what's not okay with me, the more I live my life in a way that makes me feel really aligned, which is a very woo-woo kind of word. So let me try another one, which makes me feel... I know it's very, but another word that you might try there is that this is me living with integrity to who I am. It's like I, I can wake up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and be really happy with the person that I see looking back, knowing that even though I sometimes have really hard conversations with people when I have to turn them down for things, that I have What's more important to me now, right, than getting stuck on how hard boundaries are, because they are that hard. What's become more important to me, yeah, let me say it this way. What's become more important to me is that in my relationship with that person, I was thoughtful. I was loving. I was caring. I listened to them. I treated them with so much respect. And I didn't ask anything in return. I cannot think of a better way to be in this world. Um, Don't get me wrong. I think I've always been a great person, but that's not how I was before. And now, even when I have to 
deny somebody something or do something that's really hard, I really like the way I am in relationships with people. This is a big change for me. And I think if I left this earth tomorrow, I know that the people I've interacted with over the first three years, over the last three or four years, maybe they didn't like what I had to say, but man, they are sure going to know that I respected them as humans. And I don't think there's anything more important to that. So it's funny, like the boundaries have become less important to me. And this other stuff has become more important. I get to be the person I want to be in all of my relationships. That's a pretty big deal. So do you think that, I know for a fact that a lot of people listening to this podcast will be caregivers. Do you think that caregivers are taught how to have boundaries within their job? Or do you think that's something that they need to work on because it's like I said earlier, I know for a fact that it's really easy to get wrapped up in the idea and the idea and ideology that if I am caring for a senior, whether it be a friend or a neighbor or, or as somebody that I'm hired to take care of, that it's easy to always say yes to that person because you don't want that. You think this person is older, that they should have my respect and blah, 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 and they're not setting boundaries. So does anyone ever help them set, learn to set those boundaries when they become a caregiver or do they need to do that? There aren't many of us out there. I'm one of the voices teaching people how to set those boundaries. The answer is no, we don't learn to set boundaries. In fact, this is the last sort of nugget I'll throw at you here because I know we're just about at time. There is something that we now call human giver syndrome which has actually been around for thousands of years, but the term has only been around for a few years. And what it means is that there are people in this world who we assign this role of being a giver. And for those of us who have been assigned this role, and I have been assigned this role my whole life, first as a girl and then as a woman and then as a wife and then as a mom and now as a caregiver, that it is my role to be the giver which means the expectation from everybody around me is that I am going to give and give and hold nothing back for myself so that the people around me are comfortable and successful and happy and that my own needs don't matter and that my own needs shouldn't matter. And that if I, that if I think that my needs matter, shame on me. All right. So that's what human giver syndrome is. And That's what we step into as a caregiver. What's really important about this is I just want people to hear, you don't have to choose this role of giver for other people to designate it onto you. That is definitely what happened in my life. And now that I can see it, I I do not let it control me anymore. When I choose to be in a situation where I'm giving more than I'm receiving or where I'm giving and it might be more than I'm comfortable with or maybe more than I have energy to give, that is now my choice and it doesn't go on for long. But nobody tells us that either. We're up against these huge family systems that expect us to do everything. I talk to people who have six siblings and they're the only one taking care of mom because everybody else just knows it's their job. That's a boundary thing, too. The boundary there would be around your time and your energy. 
And maybe mom thinks that's what you're supposed to do too. And that is a conversation to have with the person you're caring for. If somebody says, this is your job, we as caregivers, we can learn to say, I totally agree that part of this is my job, but I'm going to be calling my brothers and sisters and we're going to be talking about how to redistribute some of this load because this is too much for me. That last part there saying this is too much for me or I deserve to have a life too. We're taught that's wrong. That's where the human giver syndrome things come, thing comes in. And that's one of my crusades in this world is for us to realize that this is a load of hooey that has been forced onto us. And it's just a story people tell. I talk about this as it's, it's like there's a book of our life. Each of us has our own book of our life. And when we get to this chapter that includes caregiving, it's like somebody else wrote the chapter for us. You get to the chapter and all of the roles are laid out and all of the outcomes are laid out and all of the, the expectations are laid out. So you get to this chapter in your book and somebody else wrote it before you got there. I just want people to know that is not true. We can rewrite that story. Now, if you think about saying to your mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call my siblings and we're going to talk about how we can share some of this load. If that gives you a lot of anxiety, welcome to being human. You are not broken. There is nothing wrong with you. I get it. I sometimes still feel that same anxiety. I just know that it's way more important to me for my physical health, for my mental health, for my future. I was thinking your future, future health. mental health about like after That's that, right. that parent That's passes right. away someday, you've still got to continue your life. And all of a sudden there's an abrupt stop to that. And I still have to continue my life now. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I've been married for 27 years, almost 28 years. I have these two you know, older teenagers. I take care of my mom. I'm a big volunteer in the community. I have a business that I run. So I want to be able to live this life now. And it's not so that I can be a better caregiver. It's so that I can be the best person I'm supposed to be on this planet. Right now, that includes some caregiving duties. Right. Those are huge things because I've seen people that have thrown themselves 100% into the job and then, and then their parent passes away and then they're like, what do I do now? Where, what is my life now? What's my next steps? When they should have been, as you're saying, developing that all along while caring for their parent. I don't want to say to anybody that they should have been developing it all along while they were caring for their parent. I am not here to judge anybody. Their life through at people, whatever choices they made were the right choices for them then. And yeah, and it's just I okay. That. Yeah, well, of course you do. It's, of course you do. It's really okay to look back and say, if I knew now or if I knew then what I knew now, but that's not the way life works. We don't live in reverse. So if, and I have, I know lots of people also who threw everything they had into caregiving and then that caregiving ended for whatever reason. Sometimes it's a good reason somebody recovers from cancer, there are good reasons that caregiving ends. And then you have to figure out what to do next. You can still have whatever is next. Like you can still just start from wherever you are. If you're still a caregiver, if you're still a grandparent, if you're still, your situation is, you are not behind. None of us are behind. That is not the way this works. You can just start from wherever you are 
and say, I'd like to start taking a look at what my life looks like now and what I would like. And you just start from literally from today or whatever moment you're in and move forward and make different choices if you want to, or make the same choices you made before. If that's what you want and if that's what's best for your life, and when those things get hard, I am telling you, get some help. You do not have to be isolated. You do not have to live with all of the guilt and the shame and the anxiety. Get a support group, get a therapist, get a coach, get some help, and then figure out what you really do want from your life. That's the real beauty of all of this is that every day we each get to decide what do I want from here on out? Like, it doesn't have to matter what you did in the past. It doesn't matter to me. You need to move forward. And I think when, just go back to the caregiver situations, just because people think there's all kinds of reasons why you might be a primary caregiver. Maybe you're the oldest, maybe you're the youngest, maybe you're the closest, whatever that scenario is, right? For me, I'm the youngest out of three. I have one brother that passed away. And so there's two of us left. My other brother lives three or four doors down from my parents right now. And so I don't want him to become overwhelmed, overburdened, all this other feelings that he may have by living that close to my parents at an older age than when this was never the case before. So I try to be like inserting myself into helping my mom maybe grocery shop long distance or how to read books online or teaching her how to do other tech stuff because that's my thing, right? or whatnot, so that all the pressure doesn't go straight to him. And so if you're thinking like, I can't do anything, I'm a thousand miles away, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do, whether it's just having conversations like this over Zoom or whatever the case may be, just to lighten up the load for other members of your family so that they don't have to set such hard boundaries all the time as well. Because a lot of times those will come from frustration if they get to that point. So just not allowing space and time to dictate the scenario. Yeah, that is incredibly thoughtful of you. So on behalf of your brother, thank you for doing that. And this is one of the things that I always say to caregivers is one of the hardest things we have to do is learn to identify our own needs. Uh, it's like, that's so hard because it's so far from from what we've been taught to do because we've always been taught to not think about our own needs and not put our needs first and all that other stuff. But once you can identify what your own needs are, and I tell people, keep a list, because then when somebody calls, you can pull out your list and you can say, why, yes, actually, could you hire a lawn service? Would you be willing to pay somebody to come and mow the lawn over the summer? Could you hire a house cleaner? There's a laundry service that could pick up our laundry. Would you be willing to arrange that for me? All of these things that... I know make most of us feel like we just want to wither up and crawl into a corner to say to somebody, but you can learn to say all of those things and feel really good about it and understand that your needs are important, that your health is important. It's just really possible to get to a place where somebody says to you, gosh, how can I help you? And you say, hang on, let me pull up. I have a list on my phone. Let me pull that list up. Wish. If that feels really far away for you, I totally get it. Just trust me, you can get there. And it can actually feel good. You can do that without guilt being the thing that controls you, which is like mind-blowing, don't yeah. you think? To think that you could just pull up your phone and say, yeah, look, let me look at my list. 
And guilt is not the thing that you feel. It's totally true. <laughs> it's true. And just so some people even understand, you're like, you may not be financially able to do hire someone to cut the grass for the summer, but you know what you can do. And if the caregiver can't afford that, what you can do is you can stop and start with Google and say, I can't help pay for this, but here, let me call and talk to some people for you and arrange this for you so that you don't have to spend that time doing that research and finding these people to do this. The same with medical care or technology or any of that kind of stuff, right? It's spending that time researching because that's, it's easy to go hire someone to cut grass. No, it's not. It's finding the people that have openings and doing this, making those phone calls and stuff. So just the gift of time sometimes is enough. Oh, it's huge. The gift of time can be huge. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for helping us understand boundaries. Because again, over the last couple of years, that word is popping up everywhere and people are like, what? How? And so now I think I understand it much better. I hope our listeners understand it much better as well. Yes. And let me tell you that I have a playlist of episodes that I've done about boundaries. And you can, and I update it whenever I do a new episode about boundaries because I do them pretty frequently. Okay. And that is at facilitatoronfire.net slash boundaries playlist. It's pretty easy to find. It's on my links page too. If you just go to my links page, you'll see the boundaries playlist button on there. Okay. And if they want to hire you for business guidance and stuff like that, facilitatorsonfire.net as well? Facilitatoronfire.net slash coaching or just go to slash links. Just go to slash links and you'll actually see a button on there that says business coaching. And I think there's a drop down menu at the top that says business coaching. And that's where you find me. If you are interested in business coaching, the place to really look for me is going to be LinkedIn. I'm really active on LinkedIn. So is a lot of the business community. That's why I'm there. But I also do cover some business topics on the podcast. So, okay. I will put all those links below, including her LinkedIn profile, so that you can connect up with Kay. I hope each and every one of you enjoyed learning so much about boundaries. And Kay, again, thank you for joining me today on this podcast. Very valuable information. And I hope that all of you will blah, 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 go back and edit this later. Kay, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. It is really my honor to be here. And it is always fun talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. My honor as well. Thanks. Take care.